I'm going to start with a children's talk. Now, I like children's talks. However, I hate when I'm asked to do one because I can write a sermon because I can study and I'm thinking, well, I'm talking to adults and you can discuss. But when someone says do a children's talk, you're always thinking, well, what, what, what's my gimmick? What can I come up with? What can I do? However, sometimes when we try to explain things, we sometimes show something that's not intended. And there's a children's talk that goes like this. You start with a sheet of paper and you say, I'm going to give each person a corner. And each person who has a corner is going to get a sweet. Now, I don't have any sweets, so I'm sorry, there's no sweets. And you say, but, but I've only got four corners. So you go up to four people and you say, right, okay, I'm going to tear up my piece of paper. Okay. And you say, okay, you, you can have a corner. And so I give one there. And you can have a corner too. And you can have a corner too. Okay, that's it. You two can fight over it. And you can have a corner too. And then if the children are quick, they look at the piece of paper I've just given them, and what do they notice? You've got four corners. So now I can say, now, oh, you take your piece of paper and go give a corner. And very soon, well, actually, let's do it. So tear it up into four, and you realize very quickly, hopefully, uh, you're being far more neater about this. I'm seeing you all folding everything first. Right. And so you keep one piece of paper and you hand those around. That's it. Aye. Do you want me to share them? And very soon, we find everyone in the church has a piece of paper. And you think, this is wonderful. Look at what a little bit of sharing can do. And, and, if, and even if it was those of you that have now got a sheet of paper, oh, Janet, you've still got extra bits too. Everyone's now got a sheet of paper and and very soon, but if you look at your sheets of paper, how many corners do you have? Oh, sorry. And you've all got four corners. And so we could share again, and we can keep on sharing, and we could go out and keep sharing, and everyone gets a corner. And it's great, and it's a wonderful little message about sharing and how, you know, and you can talk about whatever you want to talk. Is it sharing love? Are we sharing peace? What are we sharing? However, it also shows us something else. What happens to the pieces of paper every time you share them? They get smaller. I know, and this is one of the things I always think it's great, this idea, because you can say to the children, we always tell our children, oh, see that piece of cake, you go and share the piece of cake, and the child will, you know, quite often the children are nice, yes, I'll share my cake, but they're all aware they're going to get a smaller bit of cake, and if there's three children, they're each going to get a smaller cake again, and so on. When we have this conversation as adults, we're all fully aware, if I said to you, so actually we should all share our possessions, we should all share our gifts, we should all share this, in the back of our minds we're thinking, but, but that means I'm going to have less. It doesn't work. Or it can work. And then you get the whole political spectrum. You've got the people saying, oh, no, no, that's a lovely idea, but you end up with nobody having enough. And other people say, no, no, but what happens is you've got a few people who hoard everything. And, and we get there, and we come to this passage today, and you hear people say, so this is God saying, you bring a little to God, and if God in his hands, he can share it out, and it will be enough for everyone. <coughs> Which is kind of true, but I think misses the point a little. Now, I agree that the Lord calls us to share. If I have two coats, the Lord says, give one coat to another person. Because I shouldn't have two coats while somebody else is going hungry and starving. I shouldn't be sat there. It's bizarre that in the same country that we have people going hungry, we have people going to the hospital because they're suffering from gluttony and obesity. How does that happen? But this isn't about sharing. And there are those who would argue, all, all that happened is Jesus, when he gave thanks for the bread... Everybody pulled out their pieces of bread and they all shared what they had. And it turned out that everyone had brought their own packed lunch, but they'd all bought a bit more and it turned out there was 12 basketfuls at the end. But that can't be right because 
why would you end up with 12 enormous basketfuls at the end? And I have to be honest, my mirror, I wonder at this. I don't know if you ever try to imagine what it happened. Did Jesus stand there with one loaf and as he broke it off, broke it off, broke it off? I mean, what, what, how did this work? Did they all close their eyes to pray and as they opened up their eyes, they thought, oh, wait a minute, where's all this bread and fish come from? I don't know. It's one of those wee mysteries. And I actually was left during the week thinking, why the fish? But I was also thinking, where did the baskets come from? It's one thing saying there's all this bread and fish, but all of a sudden the disciples have got large baskets to go around handing bread and fish out and thinking, where did the baskets come from? This wasn't just the Lord taking what the small boy brought to him and somehow making it bigger. This was different. The Lord created something out of nothing. When he healed, he repaired. When he raised people from the dead, he restored. When he turned water into wine, he changed. But here, when he, create, when he created enough bread and, wa- bread and fish for everybody, he created something out of nothing. And that makes this a different miracle. It's also not only something that the Lord did more than once, it's one of the few passages that's in all four Gospels. There is something in this that the Lord wants us to see that every Gospel writer recorded this passage. They record different elements about it as well. Now, there are a couple of interesting things to note as we start to look at a bit more detail. Is it says sometimes after this. Now, we know it's the Passover, and that's actually significant. And it'll be a lot more significant for John next week because Jesus goes on to expound about what it was he wants them to understand about what he did. But a wee while ago when we were back in John 5, we saw Jesus go past the crowds to single out one person for healing. That one person then found himself being excluded from the temple and Jesus went into the crowds again and found that one person that needed to be brought in and included. Here we see Jesus and his disciples trying to find a bit of space by themselves and the crowds appear. We know from the other Gospels, Jesus had compassion on the crowds. He wants to see them fed spiritually and physically. It's not an either or, it's a both. He teaches them and he provides for them physically as well. Now, because of all this, the crowds are following him. They want to chase after him because he's going to eat the bread because he provides for them. He heals them. He does everything they want him to do. But Jesus has to escape from them. By the end of next week, when we finish off the chapter, they follow him because they want to be fed. They follow him because they want to be healed. They follow him because he provides for them. They leave him because of what he teaches. And Jesus, at the end of the chapter, will be left with just his disciples. Being in the crowd isn't always a sign that we're in the right place. However, after these things, so he goes up on the mountain, and it is the Passover. And he turns to Philip and he says, this big crowd's following us. We need to feed them. Why does he ask Philip? Because Philip was a local lad. This was Philip's local area. This is where he came from. It's a bit like if we have a visitor come here and they turn to one of us from Peebles and say, oh, whereabouts can I go and get something to eat? Now, Philip's response was what any of us expect. You're not going to find anywhere that's going to be able to feed all these people and we don't have enough money. Jesus asks Philip to test Philip. Which is a curious thought because Jesus already knew what he was going to do. And I sometimes wonder about that. There are times things that happen. There's a little bit of you thinking, I don't know about you, but occasionally you go through patches of your life where things are going really well, and then something doesn't go well, something isn't quite right. 
all of a sudden your finances aren't quite enough. All of a sudden this has gone wrong, this needs fixed. And it's never just the one thing, it's two or three things. But there's always that wee bit in the back of your brain that sometimes says, have I done something wrong? Am I being tested here? What, what am I actually being asked? And that's why I like that John says on those occasions, he, Jesus knew what he was going to do. Now I want to say up front, not every test we face in life is because God has sent it to us. In fact, the vast majority of tests we face in life, they've not come from God. They're a reality of living in a fallen world. They're a reality of living in a world where things go wrong, where things are destroyed, where things fail, where things break. But it's worth always remembering that phrase that John uses, where Jesus says, where he says, but Jesus knew what he was going to do. Just that we check that says, no matter what we do face, the Lord is able to to deliver. The Lord is able to heal. The Lord is able to solve this situation. He's able to bring us through the storm. The Lord knew what he was going to do. But Philip's response highlights just how fantastic what the Lord did. That this wasn't just a small miracle, you know, making that pizza stretch to feed eight people when really it only feeds four. No, no, this was, I think someone actually calculated about eight months worth of wages at that time. The curious one is Andrew. Andrew, whenever he's mentioned in the Gospels, is always bringing someone to the Lord. He's not mentioned very often, but on each occasion, he's bringing someone to God. And he brings up this small boy and says, this small boy's got five barley loaves and two fish. Now, this, this is the food of poor people. And this was an area where you had a lot of land workers, a lot of people that lived off the sea. These were people who were quite hard workers, but they had to work hard to find a substance, find a, a way of basically keeping themselves alive. It's interesting that Andrew knows how big the situation is, but still makes mention of this little boy. I mean, I don't know what he thought Jesus was going to do. And there's a little bit of thing. Did Andrew have a wee clue that maybe just maybe God could do something because there was some bread and fish here? Because why did Andrew even mention it? I wonder, and it is purely a wonder, if it was actually the little boy Because it says this young lad has bought these five loaves and two fish. And I have loved this idea that this lad, because why would one, they say young lad, he could have been about 10, 11. Why would he have five loaves and two fish? That's more than he needs for his own meal. How did Andrew know he had them? And all I can think is the lad's actually come up to Andrew as one of the disciples and said, here, I've bought some food. Would you like some? There's a little bit in the back of mind. I wonder if it was actually the lad who wanted to share his meal with Jesus and his disciples. Now, it wouldn't be quite enough for all of the disciples, but the lad had more than he needed, and somehow he made Andrew know, I've got some food here, would you like some? And I quite like that idea. Now, it doesn't quite say that, but there's that wee bit of you thinking, how did Andrew know that this boy had any food? Well, the boy must have told him. And the Lord takes a small amount of food and does enormous things with it. Now I think, as I start off with the children's talk at the start, there is a wonderful truth that it doesn't matter how little we have, the Lord is able to do amazing things. But I always hesitate a little because I've heard that kind of message be distorted. 
We're trying to build a church at the moment. We're trying to build a building. And I don't know if you've ever been in one of those churches that say, in the hands of the Lord, your little can become much. Remember the widow and the little she put in the collection. If you just give me 10 pounds, the Lord will turn it into hundreds of thousands of pounds. We know that that's not how it works. Oh, if you just do this for me, you give me this, and the Lord will do that for you. As if somehow the Lord's some sort of guaranteed investment bank. We're a part of a pyramid scheme. When you join the church, if you just give to the next person up and the next person up, next person up, the Lord will bless you abundantly. The only issue with that kind of thought is it does two things. One, it puts the emphasis on us. It wasn't the small boy that fed the great multitude. It was Jesus who fed the multitude. Yes, the small boy had a small amount that he was willing to share, and he's made mention of, which means that it was significant enough that all gospel writers also, like myself, would thought, oh, what a lovely gesture from this lad. We must make note of that. They've all remembered it, and they've all recorded it. But it wasn't the small lad that fed the 5,000 men, plus the women, plus the children. It was Jesus. And yes, in our love of the Lord, we are called to devote our lives to him, to give ourselves to him, and do what we can for him. But sometimes when things go wrong, and this is where my thought from earlier comes on, there's that wee bit of you thinking, is that because I've not done something? Is the Lord not rewarding me or blessing me at this moment in time because I've not done something? And the answer to that is no. Because again, that's putting the emphasis back on you. That's back on you thinking, oh, it's like that travel song, I always remember it. You know, why does it always rain on me? Is it because I lied when I was 17? You start questioning yourself. We've had an interesting couple of months. The boiler's burst, so we now have no boiler. We have no heating hot water. We can because I I know enough to be able to bypass some things. Then last night I had Mo sitting on the floor with a finger on a radiator because it burst whilst I went away and made a part to repair it. The tyre burst on the car coming down this morning, but someone's hit our door and it's going to the garage tomorrow because the handbrake broke last week. Okay, so that's, that's just a handful of things. We've actually had about five or six things. Thankfully, our landlord got us a new washing machine because the last one blew up. But this has all happened in the last five or six weeks. It seems to be, oh, right, okay. Now, I'll be honest, I, most of my adult life, and I dare say most of you can share this, I, like everyone else, I've earned enough money to pay my bills, and some months you've been paying off the bills from last month and so on. And the last couple of years, actually, we've been blessed. It's not quite been that bad. So recently, we bought ourselves a new TV. The old one was so old that when the Sky person said to us, when we said, look, we're having trouble, things aren't working, he said, well, your TV's too old, it can't do these things. And we thought, oh, okay, fair enough. So we got a new TV. And I am one of those people that when the tire goes in the car and then the boiler bursts and things, I thought, oh, was that what I was meant to spend the money on? And you start feeling bad, should I have not bought the new TV? Is that God's way of saying, no, no, because every penny you've got has got to come to me. And you start having these thoughts that somehow, oh, the Lord's allowing bad things to happen, because somehow I've treated myself with something else. The problem with that is you don't enjoy anything in life. You don't enjoy the blessings God does have for you. You don't enjoy things when things are going well because you're worried that you might do the wrong thing. So I'm always very careful and very wary of anyone that ever says, oh yes, you give your little to the Lord, you commit yourself to the Lord, and he will turn things into an abundance. If that were true, we'd be the richest people on the planet, and we're not. This story is not about what we can do and how the Lord can do amazing things with what we do. It's about what the Lord does. And what did we sing? Who is the bread of life? Jesus is the bread of life. I am the bread. Earlier on, when I shared out those bits of paper, it was great. Everybody got one, but they got smaller and smaller and smaller. What happened when Jesus shared out the bread? 
it got bigger and bigger and bigger. Till the end, there were 12 basketfuls left over. And now the Lord said, collect them all up because I don't want anything wasted. There is a miracle with the Lord that only happens with the Lord that doesn't happen with anything else. If I came in here with a thousand pounds and gave each one of you a hundred pounds and you went and shared it, eventually everyone would have a penny. But if I share the Lord with you, I don't lose any of the Lord. When I pray to the Lord and he answers my prayers, it isn't, oh, People's Baptist Church, I've answered three prayers there, the other five are going to have to wait till next week. If he answers my prayers, he still has the power and ability to answer your prayers too. When we share the Lord, for some reason, somehow, the Lord, we never get to the end of the Lord. He's abundant. He's full. His riches are beyond our imagination. His abilities are beyond our imagination. It actually uses that word when we in Ephesians. That the depth, the height, the breadth of his love are beyond our greatest imagination. Jesus is saying, when you share me, I will always be enough that the person you share me with will not only be satisfied, there will be an abundance and left over. My cup is full and it runs over. It is true that the Lord can do amazing things in us and through us and there is no doubt that serving the Lord is a blessing. There are many times in my life I know the Lord has used me and I feel just overjoyed that he has. But it is the Lord's doing. But when you share the Lord, when someone else comes to the Lord, you don't lose the Lord. He doesn't become smaller. He somehow becomes bigger and greater and his abilities all the more. And I believe that's what's really going on here. And you might think, oh, that's a lovely thought. Well, actually, this is what I love about John 6. And I look forward to hearing you next week because there's some lovely bits in there. Is every now and then a preacher gets accused, oh, no, you've taken what happened. And you've twisted it. I'm thinking, you should hear what Jesus does with this passage next week. Because he gets them. He says, I fed you bread next week. Well, let me tell you about this bread. He wants them to make the connection between the bread from heaven, the manna. He wants them to make the connection between him and Moses. He wants them to make the connection between being provided for and being given the Lord. There's lots of things that he wants them to make that connection with. But then we hit the snag, don't we? Because they do make that connection. They say, this is the prophet that Moses prophesied would come, the one like Moses from Deuteronomy. He feeds us. He heals us. He does everything he needs for us. Isn't this fantastic? Let's make him king. Now, I reflected a little bit on this in prayers on Friday morning. Because how do you make someone a king who's already the king? Jesus is king. Jesus is Lord. To make him king is a bit daft. But what he picked up is it wasn't that they wanted to make him king. Because like I said, when they actually hear what he has to say, they're not as keen on that as they are on all the good stuff. I'm not saying what Jesus says isn't good stuff, but it's not, you know, people I know with children at school, I can teach them lots of maths as long as they're sweeties at the end of it, you know. They want the sweeties. They're not so interested in the maths. We find that sometimes people are like that with the teachings of Jesus. They quite enjoy the benefits of being in a church. They don't really want to hear what he has to say, which is a shame. But they want to take and make him king. And that's something we still do today. They want to make him the king that they want, the king that could overpower the Romans, the king that's going to provide them with as much food as they could possibly need, the king that's going to get rid of their sicknesses and heal them, the king that can raise the dead. We still do that today. The world is full of peoples making Jesus their king in their image. Before I give you some examples, let me ask you a simple question because we all do it to some extent. Who would Jesus vote for 
on the 6th of May. Who would he not vote for? Now, be honest, some of you have automatically thought of a party that either Jesus would or wouldn't have voted for. My question to you would be, why do you think Jesus would vote the same way or different to you? Would Jesus have voted at all? Now, the reason I'm saying that is there are many political groups around the world that will hold up Jesus as their hero. Now, for us sitting here in Scotland, it's really easy to point to some of the American politics and say, look at them. They've got the gun in one hand and the Bible in the other, and they go along to their single-race churches, and they say, God is for this, God is for that. And if you love God, then you support my policies. You support my politics. You'd be for this and you'd be against that. And they turn out everything. If you disagree with them on something, it's not that you disagree with their politics. It's because you are being unfaithful to God. So you get it on the right wing, but you also get it on the left wing. In a lot of the Southern Hemispheres, you've got liberation theology, which is a lot going for it, that if God is in real, then he makes a difference to our physical daily lives as much as he does to our spiritual lives, which is a truth. But there are those who take that to an extreme. And Jesus is the revolutionary. He's just Che Guevara. He's trying to overturn the corrupt powers and policies, and they're the people of the streets. Even in this country, Britain first uses a cross as its emblem. They have taken Jesus and made it their emblem, their king. But even sometimes in church conversations, you hear people say, but God's told me we should do this. Which isn't always a bad thing. But if God's told you to do something, but it suddenly means you can't listen to anyone else who disagrees with you, has a different opinion, different matter, you've essentially, you're using God and making him your trump card. As if somehow Jesus is your way to win an argument. Jesus is now your means to get what you want. Jesus is your means of oppressing, of, of taking power and authority over people. Because if I can just claim Jesus is on my side, then you guys have all got to do what I say. Because if you're going to be faithful to Jesus, you've got to be faithful to me. And we fall into that trap. Jesus is king, but he's not a king of our making. He is king because he is king and he calls us to listen to him and follow him. Do as he teaches. Do as he guides. Do as he wants. He is the servant king, which is what makes him so different. We live in a world, and sadly, yes, we're praying for Ukraine, where people in power and authority oppress others. Who even here in the West, we talk about politicians using their power to benefit themselves. And we worship a God who is not that kind of king, not that kind of president or prime minister. But we need to be careful that we don't take Jesus and make him a king either in our own making. And if we ever needed evidence that Jesus does not need us to make him king, we have the story of him walking on the water. Now, this is like the feeding of the 5,000. This is something else that's recorded two or three times, but also there's a suggestion that actually Jesus walked on the water more than once. We know he fed the multitudes more than once. He possibly cleared the temple more than once. It's interesting to notice how many times Jesus repeats himself in his teaching. I always think that's a sign of a patient and a loving God, that he has no qualms of saying the same thing twice or doing the same thing twice because he cares more that we understand and that we know than it does about, well, were you paying enough attention to get it the first time? Now, I often wonder, I've asked this question before, and this is the only situation where I can think Jesus did something for his own benefit. 
Because when Jesus escaped from the crowds, he sent the disciples away on their own. We know that from some of the other Gospels. Here it just simply says they got into the boats and they left. But if we read in Mark and Matthew, it says because he took himself on a mountain to pray. That's the only thing I can ever think of Jesus doing for his own benefit. Everything else he did was for someone else's benefit. It was for their benefit in their teaching, their feeding, their healing. It was always for someone else. Even here, when we start the passage and they're trying to get time to themselves, and the crowd turns up, he stops what he's doing to take care of the crowds. Taking himself off by himself is one of the few things I think Jesus ever did for his own benefit. And I say that, for all I know, his prayers could have been for us. That even though he's off by himself, he was actually still praying for other people. But spending time with his father was not a selfish act. However, he comes walking on the water. For John, who wrote this gospel, that must have meant a lot. Why? Because John was not at the time that he was writing this gospel. But if you remember, John in his later life was exiled to the island of Patmos. The reason why we exiled people to islands is because water was seen as a boundary, as a barrier. It caused separation. It kept people apart. If we see someone in a difficult situation, we see they're all lost at sea. Those of you that have ever spent time in the fishing community will know that historically, for people to go and rescue someone that was drowning at sea, they had to take their own lives in their hands and risk being drowned too. And sadly that happened. The sea was seen as a barrier. There's that strange verse in Revelation that says that when the new heaven and new earth come, there is no more sea, there is no more division. There is no more chaos, there is no more mystery. What John emphasizes here is that the disciples had been trying hard for three or four miles to get across this water, but the sea was just getting rougher and worse, and it was dark. They were in a place where they could not be seen, they were in a place where they were separated from the land, they were in a place where they were separated from the Lord. But what do we hear? None of that can stop God from getting to them. And he comes to them walking on the water. No matter how dark the situation, no matter how stormy the sea, the Lord is still able just to walk up to them as if walking on dry land. And what does he say? Don't be afraid. They have the phrase, willingly, they they then willingly, once he said do not be afraid, received him into the boat and they were instantly on dry land. Whatever situation we are in, We are never anywhere that the Lord cannot come to us and be with us. Nor are we ever in a situation where we need to recover a little before we're in a place where the Lord can help us. Sometimes when things are really bad, really dark, when we do feel the lost at sea, we kind of feel like we need to get our footing first before we can start praying. Actually, no, when we're lost at sea, that's when we can start praying. At that point. We don't need to find our footing first. We don't need to wait till our faith's a bit more. We don't need to wait till we put anything right. There and then is where where we need the Lord. And there and then is when the Lord can come to us. It seems a strange phase to say, I'm willingly let the Lord into a situation. Sometimes if we are in a bad situation, we do have that element where we feel a bit guilty and we think, oh, I'm a bit embarrassed here. I should never have got myself into this situation in the first place. And we can feel like that even if it's got nothing to do with us as to why we're in that difficulty. But we do that. Sometimes we're going through a hard time. We question ourselves. Is this my fault? And so sometimes we're a bit hesitant in our prayers. It doesn't matter if it's your fault or not. If you're in a sea and you need the Lord to come to you, he will come to you. 
But that's why it says they were willing. Sometimes we're not so willing because we're a bit worried about what God might find when he comes. Actually, the Lord cares more for you than he does about the situation you're in. He doesn't turn to the disciples and blame them because of the storm. He doesn't say to them, how did you end up here? You're all fishermen, you should know better. No, he says, do not be afraid. I am here. And he gets into the boat and they're at the shore. Jesus is Lord and he can do many amazing things. He is a bread of life. When we eat, we will be satisfied and he will be more than we ever need. He meets us where we are. All we need to do is welcome him into our lives into our situations. There is one psalm that comes to mind. And it's Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in the green grass and he leads me beside the still waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths for his namesake and even though I walk in the darkest valley, I fear no evil. For you are with me, and your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, and my cup overflows. Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. The Lord is our shepherd. He made the crowd to sit down in green grass and he fed them. And in the midst of the storm, he came to them. And we have the joy of knowing we will dwell with him in his house forever.